0: Good afternoon. We're going we're to continue our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've got your Bible and, uh, or on your phone, you want to open up to Matthew chapter 6. While you do, I want to explain to you the silver lining of Daylight Savings Time. Today's only 23 hours long. Which means, hold on, it gets better. Which means that Chick-fil-A is open one hour sooner. I crave a spicy chicken biscuit exactly one day every week. Sunday. <laughs> and it's depressing every week. But Monday's coming one hour sooner. So, uh, in all seriousness, you should have received a bulletin when you walked in this morning. Uh, you, you maybe only got like one for your family. Maybe you got a couple. Uh, but if you flip that over on the back, there is an outline there. And over the last couple of months we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We finished chapter 5, and so what you have there on the back of your bulletin is, an, is just a very brief kind of outline of how we've stepped our way through the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. So if you've been with us over the last couple months, I'm going to give you a little refresher. If you haven't been with us over the last couple months, this will you'll be able to see where we are a little bit. The order of the Sermon on the Mount matters. And getting everything in right relationship to each other within the Sermon on the Mount matters. Jesus didn't just stand up and teach on random topics at random times. He did things intentionally. And so the first couple verses of the Sermon on the Mount establish that Jesus is teaching his disciples. That's who's gathered there around him. And he's telling them what it means to be a follower of his. And then in verses 3 through 12, he gives the Beatitudes. And he's describing the foundational disposition of someone who is saved, who's a disciple of His. And that's that they've got this humility about their heart. That they realize that they can offer nothing of their own before the Lord, that they're spiritually bankrupt, they can't save themselves, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, and therefore are filled by the Lord. That the foundation for salvation, for being a follower of Jesus, is this humility of heart. And because of that, you are salt and you are light. It's not something you've got to muster up and do on your own. It just happens because your heart is fundamentally different than the heart of a non-believer, than the vast majority of the world. And because of that, you stand out a little bit. You stand out as salt. You stand out as light. And then in verses 17 through 20, we had kind of our first shift in the Sermon on the Mount from describing just what a disciple is to describing what the character is like. And Jesus said that the righteousness of a follower of Christ should exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, which to someone at the time would have been earth-shattering. How could that be possible? A Pharisee was the most righteous person on the face of the planet. How can you tell me to be more righteous than that? And Jesus says, I'll I'll, I'll explain it to you. You're not lawless, so you don't just totally reject everything the Bible says, but you're also not legalistic. You don't try to achieve your righteousness and earn your salvation because you behaved well like the Pharisees. Instead, you understand that Christ came to fulfill the law on your behalf and that now as a disciple of his, you live to glorify him and to to model his kind of life to the world. And that you do that by understanding that the heart of the Father is greater than the letter of the law. Then he gave us some illustrations of that. and He talked about murder and anger. He talked about lust and adultery. He talked about divorce. And he talked about being honest and keeping your word and retaliating and loving your enemies. And that all of those were these illustrations of what it looks like to see the heart of the Father in the midst of the commands of the Bible. That it's not just about doing what it says for the sake of somehow becoming morally perfect. That instead, it's about understanding that God has a desire for how his people would live and that we should see the heart of the Father there and seek to the best of our ability to live in obedience to it. And so he talked about having a heart of peace and pursuing perfect purity and simply being honest and modeling, uh, remembering and modeling unthankable grace to the people that wrong you. And then he arrives here at the beginning of chapter 6, and what he's about to do is lay a foundation uh, for a few illustrations at the first part of chapter 6. And so that's what we're going to dive into this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. C.S. Lewis used to say that reading the Sermon on the Mount was like getting hit in the face with a sledgehammer. And I think it's it's pretty accurate description. Because if you've been here with us and you've been tracking through the Sermon on the Mount alongside us, even just through chapter 5, which is about the first half of the Sermon on the Mount, we've been challenged with some things that should say something about who we are. I read the Sermon on the Mount and I see the disposition of the heart that's described in the Beatitudes and I think to myself, I long to be that humble before the Lord at all times. I read the Sermon on the Mount and I think about being salt and light in the world and I think to myself, I try, but sometimes I fall short of that. I see things about forgiveness and about extending grace to the people that wronged me, and about pursuing that perfect purity. And I think to myself, you know what? Yes, at times I, I'm, sh- I'm definitely striving to be all of those things, but also at times I fall short, sometimes willfully, sometimes intentionally. I do that. And we've said that the Sermon on the Mount is like holding up this mirror and seeing Jesus describing this picture of a disciple of his and having to ask ourselves, does that reflect me? Is that who I am? If you're still looking at the back of your bulletin, there's a statement there at the bottom, it's on the wall out in the lobby. It says that we exist here at Liberty Christian Fellowship to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's not just a me thing. That's not just a Tim and Tim and Jim and everybody else whose name ends in I (laughs) am. Or, the people on our staff or just the folks who volunteer and serve in leadership positions here at LCF. No, building devoted followers of Jesus Christ is an all-of-us thing. That every believer is given the same commission to go and to make disciples of all nations. And then if we're going to take seriously the task of going to do that, we've got to have something to build into them. We can't give away something that we don't possess already. So if we're going to try to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we've got to be constantly becoming more devoted followers of Jesus Christ. If we're going to seek to take the gospel to people and have it impact their lives and their hearts and transform them for eternity, it's got to first impact our hearts and lives and transform us for eternity. That's why starting with this Sermon on the Mount series was so important to me. Maybe because I needed the reminder as I began to stand up here as your lead pastor of this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And if we're going to do that alongside each other and we're going to seek to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ, then I need to be able to authentically live this, not just in front of you all to be seen, but alongside you as we work to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ together. And as we engage in that process shoulder to shoulder in this community and around the world. You see, Jesus knows when he gives this sermon that he's building 12 individuals who are hopefully going to radically change the world with the cause of the gospel. And that the breadth of the gospel's impact in the world will be directly related to the depth of the gospel's impact in his disciples. And the same is true for us today. The gospel's reach outward will go just as far as it has reached inward into the hearts of those who claim to follow him. Paul David Tripp says it feels good to think that your biggest problems in life exist outside you and not inside you. But that simply is not true. I pray that as we continue to work through the Sermon on the Mount, that we see this reality with clarity and it propels us back to the foot of the cross with that humble heart that's described in the Beatitudes. That the moment of impact, if you will, the sledgehammer to the face here for each and every one of us would drive us back to the cross to say, Lord, I know I'm spiritually bankrupt before you and I'm leaning into your grace to help me to grow more into the image of your son in this area in my life. And if I'm being totally honest, what we're going to talk about today is sledgehammer impact moment for me in my life. What's described about the heart of a follower of Jesus here in Matthew 6 verses 1 through 4, I fall woefully short of most of the time. And it's not an act of needing to try harder It's needing to hold up the mirror and take a good, hard look at my heart and say, where where am I falling short? Where do I need the Lord to really teach me and mold me and shape me into one of his followers? So let's read this this together, and then uh, we'll dive into chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Here's what we're going to walk away with today. That in all of our Christ-like behavior, we should depend on the opinion of the Lord. There should be a singular desire in our heart, not to be praised by the people around us, but to glorify, honor, and please our Father in heaven. That statement that comes at the very beginning of this chapter, Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, is the controlling statement for the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. He's going to give us three illustrations of that. Giving to the needy, praying, and then fasting. But they're all dictated by this idea that we're not to practice our righteousness before other people. As followers of his, we've got to understand what that statement means. What is Matthew 6.1 driving at? It's driving at this, that that manner and motivation matter. Manner and motivation matter. You maybe hear that, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And you think back to salt and light. In Matthew chapter 5, and you say, wait, didn't, didn't he encourage us to live our faith in front of other people so that they could see it? Isn't he saying we should be salt out there? We should be light out there? Isn't there a contradiction here? The answer is no. Let me explain why. What Jesus is talking about here is practicing our righteousness in order to be seen and praised by other people. Do you remember how the salt and light passage ends? That they might see your good deeds... And glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's an issue of motivation. It's an issue of what lies deep in our hearts and compels us to live our lives as Christians and faithful Christian individuals out in the world. So Jesus launches into his first illustration of this from verses 3 or 2 down to verse 4. He says, Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet. Look down at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus makes a statement twice in three sentences. When you give to the needy. This is the moment that hits me hardest in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does not say, if you give to the needy. Jesus does not say, if you want to give to the needy. Jesus does not say, if it happens to be a person who needs something that you're friends with and you know they need something and you can trust them, then you give to the needy. He assumes that a follower of his is going to give to people in need. They're going to respond to those who have need. There are about 663 million people on planet earth who have no access to clean water that's a large number and it's hard to comprehend fully it works out to about one in every 10 individuals on the planet wakes up in the morning and doesn't have access to clean water maybe they've got to walk miles in order to get it maybe they don't even have that option and they've just got to consume contaminated water that it is inevitably going to make them sick It's hard to wrap our mind around 663 million people who are nameless and faceless statistics to us. So if you're sitting in an end seat, you're actually in the end seat on your row. Would you stand up real quick? I didn't count and do the math. But this is probably close. Maybe this is more like one in six or seven here in the room. But if you knew that these people in this building did not have access to clean water, would you be doing something about it? If you knew that Julia Parker could not drink clean water, would you want to do something about it? If you knew that Ben McMillan did not drink or have access to clean water, would your heart be motivated to do something about it? If you knew that Kim May had no ability to drink clean water, would you be compelled to act? Jesus is saying that in response to need in the world, as a follower of his, we will be compelled to act. You can grab a seat. Maybe you think to yourself, okay, clean water, most people in America, way more than the, the average there, have access to clean water. So let me drill a little bit deeper. In 2013, there was an annual homelessness assessment, assessment report that came out and said, in the course of that calendar year... 1.6 million Americans experienced homelessness. Maybe not for the entire year, maybe they're not homeless at all times, but for a period of time in the year 2013, 1.6 million people in America were homeless. That's roughly one in 200 people in America. About 1,000 or 1,200 people are going to come through our doors this morning and sit in our services. So that would mean that five or six people, statistically, in our congregation, would experience homelessness over the course of a given year. And maybe you still think to yourself, yep, but we live in suburban America. Don, will you stand up? What if it was Dawn without a home? Would we as a congregation rally to their family's need? Would we be compelled to act because we know her and we care for her and we love her? I think we would. But Jesus says you should be giving to need in that kind of way when you know about it. Whether or not you can put a face in a story and a name to the person or not, you should be compelled to act on behalf of need when you see it in the world. Thanks, Don. A disciple of Christ has a heart that longs to give out of their abundance in order to relieve the needs of others. Jesus doesn't have to command it. He doesn't say you should give to those in need. He says when you do it, you're going to because you're a follower of mine and that's the kind of heart that you have. But there's a breakdown here for us and I'll be the first one to admit it this morning. Like I said, this is moment of impact, sledgehammer. The mirror is not a pretty picture for Tim Fritzen. And it's because when I'm approached in my daily life, when I'm confronted with someone who has need, I do one of two things. I assume that I can't help them or I assume they're trying to scam me. I don't know if it's because we live in this suburban area and it's hard for us to think about people having need in North Kansas City, Missouri. But I drive west on 152 at least once a day. And I cross over I-35, and there is at least one person somewhere in that area who's holding a sign that says they have need. And I don't even consider whether or not they actually have need. I just assume they're lying to me. A couple months ago, I had a conversation with someone in our congregation who stopped and talked to one of those individuals and ended up taking them over to Target where there's a little area to eat. And in the course of getting, like, the Pizza Hut pizza while they sat there, she discovered that this woman really did have need. And she took her shopping in Target for new clothes for her children, and the woman wept the entire time because nobody ever stops to even find out if she actually has real need. And I am so guilty of that. I drive by and I think, or or I'm, I'm downtown somewhere and I see someone who is holding a sign asking for something, and my immediate thought is not, I long to help you in the midst of your need. My immediate thought is, that person wants my money but doesn't actually need it. That is a less than pleasant image of my heart. It's a less than pleasant reflection in the mirror here as we work through the Sermon on the Mount. There's a breakdown for most of us when we experience this sort of thing because we don't see other individuals in the world naturally as God does. We don't look at people and see individuals who matter immensely to God. You see, every person on the face of the planet is made in the image of God. And because of that, they are unfathomably loved and cared for and cherished by Him. And we don't see people that way. We just see people as people. Mostly, and maybe just—maybe this is just me and no one in here can relate to this, but mostly we see people as wanting to take from us. We learned the last message in the Sermon on the Mount, that we should be seeking to give to others. To give them grace and forgiveness and to show them the same kind of love and care that Christ showed for them on the cross. And in a physical sense, now Jesus turns and says, and you should give to meet their physical need. If somebody is in need, when you give to them. There are like 7.4 billion people on the face of the planet right now. If you Google how many people have ever lived on earth, I don't know if this number is accurate or how they ever even came up with it. But apparently close to 100 billion people have lived throughout human history. You're literally nameless and faceless. I'm literally nameless and faceless. One of about a hundred billion individuals. And yet in the midst of my namelessness and facelessness, Jesus Christ thought that I was so worth it that he willingly sacrificed his life to save me. He literally sacrificed his life to save you. He saw your spiritual need as so great and so meaningful. He saw you as so great and so meaningful that he voluntarily gave his life on the cross that you might have the opportunity to have the greatest need in your life met. And in response to that, Jesus says, you should be willing to see the people around you and give a little bit of your well-being and a little bit of your comfort and a little bit of your physical provision in order to meet their physical needs. You should be willing to see the people around you and long to give a little bit of your well-being, a little bit of your comfort, a little bit of your physical provision in order to meet their spiritual need. And I hold this thing up to myself and I just see a poor reflection of that in my own heart. Jesus says, when you give, because he assumes you're going to. If you placed your faith in him, he assumes you're going to give. But then he drives it a little bit further. Because it's not it for him. He's talking about manner and motivation. He assumes we're going to give, and I fall short there. But now he presses into why we give and how we give. And he says this, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. The last portion of this paragraph explains what the manner and motivation should and shouldn't be. And in terms of manner, he says, Do not toot your own horn. He's painting an image here. I don't think anyone gave to someone in need at that time and then whipped a trumpet out of their tunic and blew it in order for people to see. Instead, what likely would happen is that at times of like afternoon or evening sacrifices at the temple, when people would show up there in order to see the sacrifices given ostentatious religious people would wait to give until then when there was a crowd there and everyone could see that, hey, look at my goodness to meet the need of this person. Jesus says they are hypocrites. They give in order to be praised by others instead of just depending on the opinion of the Lord, instead of just giving because it's who they are and it pleases God. Jesus sees through that. They look pious, but they're actually not. Then he talks a little bit about motivation. And he says our motivation should just be to humbly please God. That there's nothing else that drives us other than humbly pleasing the Lord in the midst of our obedience, in the midst of our Christ-like living. The problem that underlies this is is the desire to be seen by others instead of having others see God. As with everything we've looked at in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a heart issue. I think it applies beyond just giving to people in need to all of our Christ-like behavior. Why do you live your faith in front of others? Is it so they look at you and say, wow, she's a great person? Or, gosh, look at how kind he is. Or is it just the overflow of your heart that longs to be obedient and pleasing to the Lord, that it just flows out of you? Jesus gives this kind of commercial reference here. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. It's this picture of like you've paid and been given a receipt. If you do what you do to be seen by others, then when you get the pat on the back, that's all you're ever going to get. You've been given your receipt. Thanks for giving. Thanks for paying. Alfred Plummer says it like this. A person who conducts their Christ-likeness in this way is not giving but buying. They want the praise of others. They pay for it. And they get it. The transaction is over. They can expect nothing more. Well, thankfully, in verse 3, Jesus gives us the antidote to our faulty motivation and our faulty manner. He says, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Our giving to others or any act of Christ-like living should be done with a total disregard for selves. Let me translate for you. Not only should we not want the congratulations of others, we also shouldn't be seeking self-congratulation. I keep a tally of how I'm doing. How many good Christian things did I do today and then I can go to bed and feel really good about myself? Jesus says, no, your left hand shouldn't even know what your right hand is doing. You lose yourself in the process. You're just living life as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of living that marks what it is to be a follower of Jesus. That you just do it and you don't even think about it. You don't keep a running list. You don't tally up things. You're not keeping track of how good am I doing. You're just living life as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage says this, The ultimate choice is always between pleasing self and pleasing God. Ultimately, our reason for so desiring to please those around us is that we may please ourselves. What appears to be so selfless can easily become a not-so-subtle form of selfishness. And for that kind of Christian living, Jesus says, there's no reward for you. This is not how one of my followers conducts their Christ-likeness. Their heart won't stand for it, Jesus says. Instead, the heart of a follower of Jesus should have a singular focus on the opinion of the Lord. I just want to glorify and honor and love and please the God who saved me. He sees all. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. As we close up, I want to answer three questions that might be floating through your head. The first is, how do I know if someone is actually in need? That's a fair question. When you cross over 35 there on 152, how do you know? How do you know if the person is in need? There's a place for that kind of conversation. Ultimately, if they want to deceive you, that's on them. Mm -hmm. Not you. I think the bigger issue there is reprogramming our hearts to not just assume that we're being lied to. But maybe to take a second and roll your window down and have a brief conversation. And if they want to lie to you, they can lie to you. But that's not your problem. The issue for us in this passage is, do I have a heart that longs to give to a person in need? And do I have a heart that longs to give to a person in need, not to be seen and patted on the back by somebody else, but simply because it glorifies the Lord and I want to please Him? The second question is this. Do I do my giving through the church or do I do my giving through some outside organization? Do I do my giving on my own every time I bump into somebody who's in need and I just give and I give and I give and I give until I have nothing left? How do I I conduct that? Those are fair questions. Um, As I put this message together, one of the things I wanted to be careful about was not to hijack what Jesus is saying here in a message on tithing or something. Because that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about giving to people who are in need. And as soon as I say the word tithing, somebody's going to walk out of here and say, preacher talked about giving today. He only cares about money. The reality is that if the Christian church in America gave faithfully to the church, we could eradicate most issues of need and poverty and food and water for the world. The world, not just here in America. So... You can certainly do your giving to the needy through LCF. We support some organizations that help those with physical need here in the community, and part of your tithe goes to us supporting those organizations. You can certainly do that. There are wonderful organizations um, that give to causes of like health and food and water and those kinds of things all over the world. You could find one of those and do that. The issue that Jesus is saying is, what's your motivation behind it, and what's your manner of doing it? He assumes you're already doing it. He assumes I'm already doing it. The third question that I want to answer uh, that may be lingering out there in your head is, is it wrong to feel good when I do give? It feels great to meet someone's need. It feels great to be able to give and help somebody. I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but our sense of pleasure ought to come because we know we're pleasing the Lord, not because we can, like, check off the list that I was a good person today or somebody saw me. Any feeling we have of, gosh, it feels really good to be able to bless and help this person ought to come from the fact that we know we're pleasing the Lord and that we're living a life that glorifies and honors Him and hopefully makes the gospel known in the midst of that. I want to end with this. Jesus circles back around to this topic in Matthew 25. And... He's talking about the time of judgment when Jesus is going to come back in all of his glory. And he's talking about who is going to inherit the kingdom and who is not. And I'm going to read you kind of a lengthy passage beginning in Matthew 25, 31. If you want to jot that down, you can. But just listen to these words. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus says, you were just loving and caring and serving people because that's who you are. And in so doing, you were loving and serving and caring for me. That's how our Christ-like action should play out wholly dependent upon the opinion of God, not seeking the congratulations or praise of others, not looking to feel just good about ourselves. Instead, our motivation should be to humbly please the Lord. As a follower of Jesus, when our ever-transforming hearts spill over into our daily Christian Christ-like action, we ought to do so in a state of dependence upon the praise and, and pleasure of the Lord, not on the praise of the people around us. We're going to sing a closing song. Brian's going to come up. So if you want to stand, I'm going to pray. Uh, There'll be people on both sides of the stage who'd love to pray with you this morning. Once we're done singing, we'll be able to go from here and enjoy our 23-hour day. Let's pray.